This morning we'll be continuing our series in Colossians. We'll be in chapter 2 starting in verse 8. We'll be reading verses 8 through 10. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. The word of the Lord says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good to gather in God's house with God's people. Amen. Uh, Just a couple of announcements, and then we'll jump into God's holy word this morning. Uh, The two announcements are, remember June the 13th, uh, Sunday morning, uh, Brother Steve Turner um, from the North American Mission Board. He used to be the uh, worship um, director here and the youth pastor here will join us Sunday morning to preach from God's Word. I would encourage you to be here. I would encourage you to reach out to some of the his old students and invite uh, them to come and visit with Brother Steve. That's June the 13th. Also, June the 21st through the 25th at, eight, at 6 o'clock through 8.15 is VBS. That's June the 21st uh, through uh, June the 25th at 6 o'clock to 8.15. Mark your calendars for VBS. And then two other quick uh, announcements. Uh, many of you heard uh, an older gentleman this past week uh, was hit by a car and died on his bicycle. That's our neighbor right to my left, uh, to your right. Uh, let's continue to pray for the family. Let's pray that justice will be served. They have not found the, the person that, that did hit him. Um, and so let's pray that God would uh, bring that man or woman to, to justice. And let's pray more importantly for comfort for the family and their loss. I also would like to acknowledge today, this is Memorial Day weekend. We are going to take a moment of silence here to thank uh, God for all the men and women that served this country and gave their life for us. Um, It's their life that they gave that we uh, want to remember them for their sacrifice that allows us to even gather this morning. And so I, I want to just pay tribute Uh, to those men and women whose lives were lost for our freedom. Uh, Let's go and uh, take a moment of silence for those men and women that serve this country. Let's pray for our neighbor, and then let's ask God to do what only he can do, and that's transform our lives through his uh, holy word this morning. A moment of silence, please, this morning. God, we come to you humbly this morning. Come and ask for your guidance through your truth this morning. We took a moment to remember the men and women whose lives were sacrificed on our behalf to have freedom. I pray that would remind us of a greater sacrifice, your son Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, 
and gave it freely back to you on our behalf that we would have life and life to the full. So I am grateful as a, this weekend, as a reminder of this Memorial Day weekend of the greater act of service that your son bestowed on our behalf. And God, we do, we come and we ask for your uh, peace and your comfort, uh, literally for our neighbors and their family as they mourn today the loss of a husband, a father, a grandfather. I pray that you would bring them great comfort. I pray that you would let them know that you're near to them and are walking with them. And God, you would bring healing in the midst of this tragedy. God, we do pray for justice. Pray for whoever that man or woman is this morning that has not turned themselves in or been caught yet, that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you allow that to happen. And God, I do pray that you would continue to use this church and this community to bring hope. Hope for those who are far from you. Hope for those who are near you, that you would let us be salt and light into this dark community. And now, God, as we come and we open your word, I pray that we would begin, even now through the work of the Holy Spirit, to prepare our hearts to be a soil for which the seed will fall and for which the seed would grow into maturity. Our likeness in you would continue to grow. I pray for anyone here this morning that does not know you, has not trusted you, has not obeyed you as both Lord and Savior, that this morning would be the morning that you would draw them to yourself and they would respond in repentance to that great call. So open our eyes to see your scripture, open our ears to hear your scripture, and open our hearts to receive your scripture, your holy, inerrant, infallible word. We're grateful for this gift that you've so freely given to us. So lead us, guide us, as we look at your text this morning here in Colossians. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, and God's people say, Amen. Turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We'll cover just a few verses this morning. We will cover chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Uh, just three short verses. But in these short verses is um, a warning to us. It's a warning that Paul wrote to the church in uh, Colossae. And he's warning them. If you remember where we've been in this journey with this young church, a, a church that didn't last very long. But for whatever reason, in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty, allowed this letter to be put into the canon of Scripture. And I believe it's for this reason. I believe it's for what Paul says. It's for Christ, the hope of glory, that we would see Christ, our hope, and the glory that comes with him, that we would see what the Apostle Paul has been writing about and will continue to write about, that Christ is supreme over all things. The supremacy of Christ is what this uh, series has been titled. And what Paul is wanting these young believers to continue to see, to believe and trust in, that it's Christ plus nothing equals salvation. And that there's no work, there's no merit unto man that can earn salvation because Christ is supreme and head over all of that. What we've been saying is that there's been some teachers that have come into 
the fold here at this young church and begin to preach a gospel contrary to what Paul was preaching, what Paul had been pre preaching. That gospel is simply this, the good news of Jesus. There was a man that was perfect and holy and righteous that was the Son of God. We'll see in this text, he was the fullness of God, and he freely gave his life to bring both Gentiles and Jews back into relationship with God through his sacrificial death or his atoning work on the cross. And through that death and through that sacrifice, allowed man to be reunited with the God that created them through his work on the cross and more importantly, the resurrection. But these, these teachers have come in and began to say to them, no, no, there, there's more to it than that. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. There's something on your end that you have to do, that you have to achieve in order to have a relationship with God. And these young believers began to believe that and began to practice that. And so Paul hears about that in his house arrest and writes this letter back to them. And so they're reading this letter. And this is what Paul says here in the text. Now he's going to give them a warning. And the warning is going to come and he's going to warn them about something. But he's going to say, in the warning, you have two options. You can choose either one. But I'm going to warn you. But as I warn you, I want you to know there's two paths that you can choose to go, if you please. So here's the warning, what Paul says. We just read it. I would like to read it again, though. He had just said in verses 6 and 7, remember, you have received Christ Jesus Walk in him, be rooted in him, be built up in him, be established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. Remember where you came from. Remember that joy of your salvation. Remember the gift that God so freely gave to you. And then he says, but wait, there's a warning because this is happening to you. I believe it's happening to us, the American church. If Paul were to write a letter to the American church, I believe he would do these same few words to us. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or, or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. You who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's the warning. He, he says to them, know your enemy. And that's the first question I would ask to us this morning. Do you, do I, do we, the church, do we know our enemy and do we know the tactics he's going to use to lead us astray? You see, because Satan is a, a cunning, baffling, powerful force. And he's going to do it in very subtle ways. It's not going to be blatant how he leads you and I away from the gift of our salvation it's going to be through subtlety. And this is what Paul says. Know your enemy, but also know the tactics he's going to use. Do you and I, do we know the tactics? Paul says, here are two tactics the enemy is going to use to lead us astray. The first one is this. He says, don't be taken captive by what? Philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy simply means this. The love of knowledge. That's what the word literally means. So Paul is saying, hey, don't allow philosophy or the love of knowledge 
to lead you astray. But he's not talking about the love and knowledge that comes from Christ. Because my prayer is this, that you would love Christ, that you need a knowledge that loves God. But what does Paul say? It's not the love of knowledge. It's the love of knowledge with what? Empty deceit or empty words, a lot of fluff. Jenny and I were up last night watching a very popular man, and I'll say it in quotes, preach God's word. And I sat there for maybe four and a half minutes. It seemed like an eternity, but I'm like, I, it sounded really, really good. Like he drew me in, he was charismatic, he said some things that sounded like the Bible. Not one time did he have a Bible in his hand. Not one time did he refer back to a passage of Scripture. But I was thinking to myself, that is what Paul is talking about. That is a love of knowledge with empty deceit. And you can turn on the TV at any hour of the day and hear preachers preach God's word. I put that in quotations because I don't believe they're preaching God's word. They're entertaining. They're captivating. They're funny. But they are full of nothing. One translation says it this way. Don't be deceived by how hollow it is. Like things can look really good on the outside, but if something's hollow, it means it's really fragile. You drop it, it's going to shatter. And so Paul is saying to us, know the tactics of the enemy. He is going to use philosophy or things that sound really wise, that, that sound really good, but they're going to be empty. How many of us have been led astray by teachers like that. And I could sit here and I won't this morning list teacher after teacher after teacher. We sell them even in our Christian bookstore. They make millions of dollars. They, they fly around in private jets. They, they teach a gospel that is not the gospel. And it's led many, many, many people astray. Many, many people would say they know the gospel. And my great fear would be what Jesus would say. I said this last week, I'll continue to say it. Well, that many people will come to Jesus in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, but we did all these things. And Jesus would say, but I don't know you because they were led astray by a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he says this about the philosophy. This is what philosophy is going to look like. So know the tactic the enemy is going to use through how philosophy or the love of knowledge, it's going to be hollow, but let's look at two ways it's going to look. He says the two ways are this, through human tradition and through human teaching. Human tradition is what he says, according to what human tradition. Don't be led astray. Don't be held captive by philosophy or human tradition. This is what Jesus came to teach against. 
When, when Jesus began his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and, and chapter 7, he taught on human tradition. There's this phrase throughout the Sermon on the Mount where it says this, you have said this, but I say this. You have heard this, but I say this. And I wonder for us, church, House Chapel, the American church, how much we stand on our tradition, but not the gospel. The tradition of the church. Now, again, I'm not dogging tradition, but when tradition becomes the gospel, it's not the gospel. It's preference. In so many churches in America, both traditional and contemporary churches want to hold on to tradition. The the traditional church wants this style of of worship. The, The contemporary church wants this style of worship. That is dividing the church. It's not what is played at this piano. It ought to be the doctrine of what's being played out of this piano that we are holding true to. Not the way it's being played, but what is being played, not how. And yet so many of us in the church are holding on to tradition, and tradition is killing the church, both contemporary and traditional, because it's become a tradition. And Paul is warning us. And I guarantee Paul would say the same thing to us. Don't allow tradition to choke out the life of the church. If doctrine is not what's withholding the church, then nothing holds the church. And that is what Paul is saying to us. Let us get back to what God's word says. God's word has no preference how we play a song. God's word has preference of what's being played through a song. I've told Jared this many, many times. That song will never be played in this church. I don't care how great it is. Because it doesn't hold to the doctrine of what we here at this church believe in. Let us not be a traditional church on either side of the fence, Palace Chapel. Let us be a doctrinal church. He not only says it's going to come through human tradition, but it's going to come through human teaching. He says that in the text. According to elementary spirits of the world, that literally means the ABCs. Don't abandon what is true about the doctrine, teaching. Here's some of those teachings that have infiltrated the church. They sound really godly. They sound like they come out of God's word, but they're not in God's word at all. I'll name just a few. I think my parents used this because I was not a clean child growing up. I did not clean a keep a clean room, but they would often tell me cleanliness is next to That's nowhere in the Bible. But my parents used it as a shame tactic. Like I'm going, dying and going to hell because my bed isn't made. That's not in the Bible. 
That is human teaching. Another one of those phrases is this. It sounds even better. God helps those who? That's nowhere in the Bible. But how many people have quoted that? Ah, the Bible says. Man, the Bible gets a bad rap for what it does not say, does it not? Another one is this. Probably even more so. Because it's really close to the text. But it's not in the text anywhere. Money is the root of. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evils. Not money is the root of all evils. The love of it. And on and on and on I could go. With what is being taught from a pulpit. That is nowhere in the canon of scripture. Another one that's being taught now. God loves everyone. That sounds really great. That is not what the Bible says. God loves this. God loves that. And on and on we can go. That's not what it says. God nowhere in his Bible says because God loves everyone, then everyone can get married. That's not what God's word says. God has a way of what marriage looks like and what marriage doesn't look like. God has a way of what biology for a child looks like and what it does not look like. But people are steering away from God's word to human teaching because they're too afraid of what God's word says because this word is super offensive. Like God's word, it really is at its core. It's really offensive. That's what Paul says in, in, in Corinthians. He says to the church of Corinth, which again, I, this drives me absolutely crazy. And if you've ever been to that church, I would rename it. If you've ever gone to the first church of Corinth, Baptist church, don't go to that church. Paul, that's not a cool name for a church. That's a side note. Corinth was a wicked, wicked, wicked church. And Paul's addressing them about their human tradition and their human teaching. And he says to this, what God sees as wise and the world sees as wise are two different things. God is going to bring the wisdom of the world and make it look foolish. But the world does not want to look foolish. It wants to look cool. But God's word is so clear. When God's word is clear on things, we must stand to those things. So he says, know your enemy and know his tactics. That's door number one. That's a choice that you and I can make. That's the choice that the church can make. We can choose door number one. We can choose to walk through human tradition and human teaching. But I promise this, it will lead us straight to the pit of hell. We must know our enemy. And we must know his tactics because the application he says to us, if we don't know our enemy and we don't know his tactics, it will do something to us. It's in the very first part of verse eight. See to it that no one takes you what? Captive. That word means this, to be enslaved by or forced into something. To be held against your own will. 
And so Paul is saying there is a warning that you know your enemy so that you're not held in bondage. See, the, the world wants to teach, hey, you do your you the way you want to do you, you'll be free. Paul says, no, no, you do you the way you want to do you, you will be in bondage. Don't be held captive by human tradition or human teaching. But then he goes on and says, and thank God Paul continues to write in verses 9 and 10. He says, not only do we need to know our enemy or know what's behind door number one, but we must know what's behind door number two. You must know your deliverer. You must know the hero of the story. And then he says this, twofold is the hero, which is very powerful. Verses 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. The first thing we must remember about our hero is this, that Jesus is fully God. The fullness of God, Paul says, dwells in the bodily form of Jesus Christ. That he is both fully man, but he is fully God. There's no attribute of God now in Christ Jesus that is absent. He is equal to God. I think so often when we think of Jesus, we, we think of him, yes, he is the son of God, but we look at him a little bit less than God. No, he is fully God. He reigns supreme over all things. He is in, at all time sitting, reigning at the throne of God himself. He is fully God. Do we truly believe that about Jesus? Do you, have you trusted and believe that Jesus is fully God? But he doesn't stop there. I think the application to this next part of the passage is so powerful because this is what gives us all of our freedom. Look what Paul says. Yes, he is fully God. And the deity of God dwells in that bodily form. And then he says in verse 10, look at it clearly. And you, the believer, have been what? Filled in him. It doesn't say you will be filled in him. You might be filled in him. You could be filled in him. He's saying, Paul said, at the moment of your convergence, you have all the fullness of God now dwells in you, the believer. There's nothing lacking in your life or my life because Christ now dwells in me. Paul says it this way in another text. He says, you now have everything you need to live a life of godliness. Think of it this way. When your children are born, they don't come out of the womb needing to continue to grow body parts. It's not like, oh, look, we can't wait for his little arms to grow and his fingers to grow. It's like he's that child is in its fullness. It's got all of its brain, though its brain isn't fully developed in, in a rational sense, but it has everything it needs inside of its body at the moment of birth. And that is what Paul is saying to us in our conversion. You now have everything to grow into the maturity 
of Christ. There's nothing lacking in you. Think about that for a moment. Christ is the fullness of God. And it says, He has now filled you, the believer. That ought to do something to us, church. That ought to awaken something in us. That ought to excite us. The fullness of God dwells in us. Filled, it says, with Him who is the head of all things. So my question to you, my question to me this morning, what door will you choose? Will you choose a philosophy that is hollow and shallow, human tradition and human teaching, led by the world? Or you and I choose door number two that's so freely given to us through Christ Jesus, the fullness of God, if you choose Him, will be in you. That ought to set us ablaze for the glory of God. Paul says it this way. This is why your body and my body are so important because it's the temple of God. Said it last week, I'll say it again. I can't say it enough. If you're a believer, Christ dwells in you. He doesn't dwell in this church. This church is just a building of brick and mortar. But he dwells in each one of us. That's what makes us the church. And again, that, that's why we come and gather as a church. We could gather on the front lawn and be a church. We could gather at your, uh, at, at your living room and be the church. As long as the people of God are gathering together, we bring God and all of us to be one. And so my question to you this morning, again, is which will you choose? Do you know this Jesus? The hope of glory. The eternal God, the pulled on skin, to dwell amongst us, God Emmanuel, to live a perfect sinless life because he knew we could not live a perfect sinless life. And that there had to be a great sacrifice made on your behalf, my behalf, to put us back into relationship with God in Christ Jesus did that. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he died for you. He died for me. He died for our sins to reconcile us back to the Father. Have you put your faith and hope and trust in him? Because the promise is this, at the moment that happens, That Christ now dwells in you. That's the hope of glory for us, church. Let us not be held captive by empty, vain philosophies of this world, by tradition and teaching that are not in God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I pray for any of us in this building 
who have been taken captive by empty words. That you would set us free. Because you promise us freedom. I pray, God, that we'd be students of the word. That we would know your truth. And we would know if those words are hollow and empty that are being taught. Because not one word from your holy word is empty, shallow, or hollow. God, I do pray if there's anyone in here this morning that has, up until this moment, chosen door number one to walk through. That they are not a believer. They are not a follower of you. That this morning, God, you would awaken their hearts. You'd open their eyes and their ears to hear the gospel, the true gospel. God, let us know your son more fully in a more robust way than when we walked in this morning. We, we know him, trust him, and believe him. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I will be here up front. I'd love to share more about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. If you're here this morning, you just need prayer. Uh, The altar is open. Come see me. I'd love to pray over you and with you. Let's stand as we worship this morning. i
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.